Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hey everyone, welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. In this episode, we have Patrick Schreiner, who will be talking about his book, Political Gospel, Public Witness in a Politically Crazy World. And uh, we hope that you find this episode both helpful um, and timely. So uh, also, if you would like to support what OnScript is doing, you can do so at onscript.study forward slash donate. But otherwise, the main way you can help is by just sharing the word with friends, family, colleagues, associates, neighbors, and uh, strangers. So thanks to all of you who do that, and we really value you listening to this uh, podcast. So uh, thanks so much, and check out our other podcast, uh, Biblical World. Uh, That's about the history, archaeology, context, geography of the Bible. Um, And also, just as a reminder, we did a short series called In Parallel. uh, That was hosted by Brent Strawn, and it explores the uh, intersection between biblical and contemporary poetry. So that's a separate feed called In Parallel, if you want to check that out. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome back to On Script. I'm going to start today by reading a quote. To claim that America is a Christian nation is a confusion of categories. America and Christianity are two very different things. Churches fly American flags in their congregations. We celebrate July 4th with the same bravado as Easter. We endorse candidates. We invite presidents to speak at services or condemn the other party as the work of Satan or Jezebel. We combine the hope of the kingdom with the American dream. America becomes a city on a hill that brings about kingdom ends. The language of America as a Christian nation has done more harm than good, compelling us to sell our imperishable inheritance for a bowl of American stew. It's a great line uh, and powerful imagery. Uh, This is taken from Patrick Schreiner's new book, Political Gospel. This is Matthew Bates, your co-host today for On Script, and I've got Patrick with me today. Welcome to On Script, Patrick. Thanks, Matt. Great being with you. So, Patrick, uh, you're here to tell all of us whether we should vote Biden or in a Trump-like direction, what to think about immigration, health care, and exactly which policies a good, devout Christian should and should not support, right? That's right. I'm, I'm here to bring clarity to everyone. <laughs> no, I know you're joking around. I say at the beginning of my book that that is not what this book is here to answer, but um, we can talk about many things, whatever you'd like to. Yeah. Um, well, although you're not going to prescribe policy for us here, um, as, you, um, as you point out in the book, you do claim, uh, and here this is a quote from your page nine, you claim, quote, I don't think the average Christian is nearly political enough. What do you mean by that, Patrick? Yeah, so the this book actually came from my reflections on both watching kind of the American church uh, engage with politics here in our nation. And as everyone has recognized, the years 2016 to 2022 has probably brought some things to the surface that were underlying all along and probably existed all along. Um, but I was concerned just uh, with the division that was happening in the church over politics. But then I was also 
uh, concerned that we weren't bringing the scriptures to bear on these conversations. So there's a lot of good books that talk about some of these policy things, how we should think about them in terms of economics or the best thing for our nation or for the world. Um, but I'm really not an expert on those things. Uh, I'm a New Testament scholar. And what I really believe is that um, the scriptures give us kind of our marching orders in terms of how to engage in this world. Now, obviously, it's a different time. It's a different place. But so often we come to the scriptures and we think, well, this is all about religion. <laughs> this is not about politics because we have that modern division between religion and politics. So religion for us is a private thing. Politics is a public thing and, and probably in, in popular parlance. But um, when you go to the New Testament, is, is if you study it, you recognize for most of history, those two things haven't been separate things. And I would argue in Jesus's time, in the first century, in Paul's time, as the church was being born, those, weren't two, they, those were not two different things. You see that in the Old Testament. Uh, when one nation wins, it's their God has won. So religion and politics were, were of the same sphere. And so I really wanted to, number one, just point that out. And for the purpose of saying the scriptures have us a lot more to teach, a lot more to teach us about our political engagement. And even more than that, um, the Christian message, as you just read out, is a politic itself. And so I, at least I framed it this way. We tend to either be so partisan, and this is in America, so partisan that we align Christianity with one political party, or on the opposite end, we make our Christianity private, where it has nothing to say towards our public stances towards things. So I was, I was trying to say, no, I don't. The problem is you either kind of fall off on one side of the horse, and I think what we need to do is recognize Christianity, Jesus's message specifically, was a political message. And I don't mean partisan by that, and I don't mean private by that. I mean it was truly a world forming, how do we organize ourselves? He wasn't giving like, this is the type of government I want you to have. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. No, but he is giving us um, how our entire life should be run together. Because politics is really just how do you, how do you um, exist together, the activities associated with the organization and the governance of a people. So I'm, I'm going back to the historic kind of definition of what politics is. When I say Christianity is a politic, and it, it doesn't just have political implications, it itself is a politic. And, and we can get into some of that, but uh, what I mean by that is it has to do with who has the right to tell us what to do, who, who rules our life, uh, how, how do we order ourselves, what happens in the public domain, um, how, how do we engage with um, enacting justice, how do we use our money, uh, how do we have different beliefs and come together on those things if you live near one another? All, all those great questions. Um, I, I think for so long, Christians have, again, either unduly said Christianity is partisan or has nothing to say towards those issues. And so I was kind of trying to come in the middle and say, no, the scriptures actually give us a way of engaging with the larger political system and gives us actually a politic itself. Thanks, Patrick. That's helpful. And I think your book is a wise book that does, um, uh, yeah, blaze a middle trail, right, uh, and wanting to help us to not fall off the horse uh, into just a quietism or to, into a radical subversive activism that isn't a Jesus kind of subver subversion, at least. Um, 
And uh, I think it's also a, a tremendously well-written book, uh, and so I think um, our, our audience will enjoy it. Uh, and maybe this is the kind of book that you want to pass along. Uh, uh, after reading it yourself, you'll find you want to pass it along to your uncle who only want to, wants to talk <laughs> politics with you. Right? Um, it might be that kind of book too. Um, but uh, you, one of the things I think that you you bring are a lot of good analogies in the book, and you you uh, one I found particularly arresting was your um, your analogy that you talked about an alien spaceship arriving and um, these aliens disembarking and uh, engaging uh, with uh, the population and um, and how we might interact with their um, message or intentions toward us. Um, and uh, you, you use this as a bridge to speak about Christianity. I was wondering if you could enter back into that for us and um, maybe to the degree you can retell the gist of that analogy and why you think that's a helpful way of thinking about what it means to be a Christian in the world. Yeah, yeah. If I can remember my own analogy, <laughs> I'll attempt to. But um, yeah, so I was just trying to think of how do we get out of kind of our mode of thinking and give an analogy for people to think of how do how do Christians exist in this society? And and really the concept that I was thinking of is we're we're a foreign delegation from another kingdom. And uh, we're pilgrims here. And so really, if you begin this analogy, thinking of yourself as a pilgrim here on this earth, which I think is biblical language, you're a pilgrim, you're a sojourner. I likened it to, well, what if aliens showed up here in New York City and they came to humans and they said, hey, we've got this um, amazing technology that's going to fix everything. Um, And you know, we we're happy to fit in for the time being. <laughs> we're happy to exist with you. And actually, we don't want to take over anything. We just want to tell you about this really great tool that we have come up with. And they go on CNN and they're interviewed and they're like, do you want to take down our government? Do you want to take over? And they're like, no, actually, we're really happy to exist here. But in the future, when we introduce this new technology, this communication tool, there actually is going to be no need for the government anymore. And so we're happy to exist in the meantime and really submit to what you guys are doing. But at the same time, we're actually trying to bring a better society to you. So we're here for your good. And that's a very strange analogy. But I actually think Christians exist in a, in a similar posture towards the culture. We uh, come from a, another kingdom and we are representing that kingdom. And we have a really good message. And in the meantime, we're saying we're happy to submit to what's happening here. We care about the flourishing of all humanity. But at the same time, we actually have a message that um, is going to bring in a a greater society. And that's not going to come by dominion or by force. We're going to actually introduce it to you. We're going to talk about it and we're going to tell you about it. And so I use that example to kind of say, hey, you know, I think people would be very nervous about this delegation. (laughs) I mean, even me saying it, I get a little nervous about aliens showing up and telling us we're going to fix everything for you. I've seen Independence Day way too many times, right? That's not how it works. (laughs) Um, But I use that as kind of an introduction into if Christianity is political, then the reality is if God is, another way to put it is if God is sovereign over all things, then we're called to both submit to the governing authorities, Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, because he installed them, but also also to subvert them when they're not going the way that he has called them to go. In other words, when they're not providing that order and justice and peace that they're called to do. And so the, the hard thing, this is what made the book actually hard to write and hard to talk about, is we tend to think of only the command to submit Or we only think of the command to subvert in terms of, hey, we're not for this kingdom, we're for another kingdom. 
And we either emphasize one or the other, but the scriptures seem to take both of those realities, submit and subvert to the governing authorities, and bring them together in this amazing paradox where they're both always kind of revolving around one another. And I actually structured the whole book around those kind of concepts. And I said at the beginning, hey, hey if you, yeah, are we going to get into that? Yeah, always, yeah don't, not to interrupt yep. you, but yeah, I'm going to ask some questions that do um, allow you to expose, hopefully, the structure of those paradoxes that you um, you laid out for us. Um, so we'll, we will circle around that, and uh, I'll, I'll let you hopefully also exemplify those with scripture as you can. But let me introduce you a little bit more fully, Patrick. Uh, Patrick Schreiner is the director of the residency PhD program and associate professor of New Testament and biblical theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He previously taught at Western Seminary in Portland, Oregon, and received his PhD from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in 2014. In addition to the book we are presently discussing, which is Political Gospel, Public Witness in a Politically Crazy World, published by B&H, Patrick is the author of a number of books, including a commentary on Acts, also with B&H, uh, The Visual Word with Moody, The Mission of the Triune God, a Theology of Acts with Crossway, Matthew, Disciple and Scribe with Baker Academic, and The Ascension of Christ uh, with Luxem. I've read several of those books and it very much have appreciated uh, Patrick's contribution. Uh, Patrick has some other books too, beyond those I could even get to, as Patrick has been pretty prolific. Uh, he serves as an elder in his church, Emmaus Church in North Kansas City. He's married to Hannah and they have four children. Now, Patrick, I know you do have a couple other books that have just emerged uh, beyond political gospel. Uh, you want to give a shout out to those? Yeah, so this year it's been a busy year, but not because I've been working all these books because they happen to come out this year. But this year, I, my Acts commentary just came out. That was the first commentary that I did. Had so much fun writing it. Um, Acts is a large book to tackle for your first commentary. Not as bad as something like Isaiah, but um, yeah, yeah, it's very it's a long New Testament book. But I had a, a great time with that. And then um, actually stemming from that, I wrote a theology of Acts that came out this year as well. And that's really a, an expansion of my introduction to my commentary. Um, and really, uh, people are like, how did you write all these books this year? Well, all of these books stem from my Acts commentary <laughs> because I was working for so many years on that. And actually getting us even into this conversation, we'll, I'm sure we'll get into it more, but I was watching the culture and reading Acts a lot and watching how Paul interacted in these different cities. And I, actually, that's where this book stemmed from. I recognize, oh, Paul's Paul's message is very political. and It's upsetting the order of things. But then he's consistently declared to be innocent. And I thought, wait a second, that's exactly like Jesus. Jesus is upsetting the order of things, but then he's declared innocent. And I thought, wow, this just, this just really goes through the New Testament. So um, that's really where it came from. Yeah. How about um, you? You give a shout shout out to a, a couple other resources you found particularly helpful as you were working through Acts that helped frame things up for you in terms of this topic. Yeah. No, well, scholarship as a whole. Yeah. Like, uh, what were some of your favorite reads on Acts? Uh, just maybe two or three. Yeah. So, uh, well, Kevin Rose, World Upside Down. Honestly, this book in one way is a expansion of his thesis. There, I found that such a helpful book uh, in terms of walking through it. Um, I also found Matthew Suleiman's book, actually, it goes back to my work on the Ascension. This is a Cambridge University Press book, but I think he does Acts 1 through 9 or Acts 1 through 11, um, and the importance of the Ascension for the narrative of Acts and the mission of Acts. And I had read that actually back in my PhD days, but I revisited that, and I found that to be such a helpful paradigm uh, for reading it. So Matthew Sleeman, uh, I don't even remember the title of the book anymore because I, I worked on this so long ago. Um, 
other books. Uh, I read all of Keener's book, <laughs> four volumes on acts. Uh, yeah, that was a huge and helpful work. Uh, I really, you know, people don't talk about Robert Tannehill's book, um, The Narrative Unity of Luke and Acts, as much as I think they should. So he has a book on Luke and he has one on Acts. And I think his um, literary kind of uh, emphasis and what he's seen in the text is actually genius. I, I yeah. found it so helpful. And so that would be a book that I would pick up. I read that in yeah. PhD work too, and it was very helpful. I remember finding that to be striking. So yeah. Yeah, good. Uh, those are those are a couple of good titles. Um, well, I've got a couple questions and three questions that I hope I'll hopefully expose the book, um, as I already mentioned. Uh, and then uh, beyond that, then I have some like kind of big macro questions about the whole project. Um, so uh, we'll do the three, and then of course maybe we'll sprinkle in some speed rounds as we have time. So let me hit you then with um, those. Uh, yeah, those questions that are designed to expose the book then. So you have three paradoxes uh, that you uh, that you present in the book. And if I could, I'll just go ahead and read those three par uh, paradoxes. This is from page 16. Uh, these are the three, and maybe I'll have you speak to each. But first of all, then Jesus proclaimed the way of the kingdom, but enacted it as the way of the dove. Paul proclaimed the way of subversion, but did so in the way of submission. And then the third, Jesus' return will be the way of the lion, but embodied in the way of a slain lamb. And so how about you speak to that um, first one uh, to begin then, and as you wish to also draw us into um, some specifics of scriptural passages that you found helpful to illustrate, uh, if, if you wish. Uh, but the, first of all, then Jesus proclaimed the way of the kingdom, but enacted it as the way of the dove. Yeah. So as I said at the beginning, I have these paradoxes of submit and subvert or kingdom and kind of a dove-like way. And I begin with Jesus, our political past. And my argument, again, is that Christianity is political. And so I said, how do we see that? Well, often when we go to the scriptures, we go to the Jewish background, which I do think is primary for how we read the New Testament. But we often forget about the Greco-Roman kind of background here. And so for a lot of scholarship, actually, 60, 80 years ago, it was all about Hellenistic backgrounds. Now we've kind of switched to a more Jewish background. And I think we've kind of forgotten uh, about the Hellenistic side and uh, the Greco-Roman side. And so a lot of what I do in this book is just point out, not saying that it's primary, but point out that many of the terms that Jesus would have used, many of the things that he did, this is true for Paul as well in the early church, they would have had some political implications for that kind of Greco-Roman side as well. And so throughout the book, I go through and I just point out when Jesus announces in Mark his first words, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, uh, repent and believe in the gospel for the kingdom of God is at hand. All of those terms, gospel, kingdom, believe, Matt, you've worked on some of these terms yourself, but all of those terms are actually political terms in both their history and how they're used in the Greco-Roman context. So while we like to file them, I say we file words away in different kind of bins, right? We file gospel kingdom and believe away in the bin of religion. But when they would have heard those terms, there would have been political associations with them. So the very fact that Jesus came to announce this kind of kingdom and this good news, this uh, what I would call the victory of his kingdom, and that people are to have faith, loyalty, allegiance, as you've worked on yourself. I found your work helpful on this. Um, that they would have heard that and they would have been, okay, this guy is coming not to just have a revolution in our hearts. <laughs> yeah. He's bringing in the new kingdom, right? 
And, and so you have just kind of his basic words. But then as you go throughout, you recognize even though Caesar and Rome isn't mentioned a lot, I think there are certain stories that are indicating that he's speaking to Rome. He's speaking about Rome. Um, or he's challenging implicitly maybe some of the Roman ideology of the time. So I, I go to a text, um, the Exorcism of Legion in uh, Mark 5. And just that word legion, right, is, is like a Roman army. Uh, and if you go through that text, there's a lot of Roman kind of indicators there that shows that this could be kind of like a political parable as well as a spiritual ex exorcism. And so that he's doing certain things to show that he is, you know, he talks about in Mark, the Gentiles lord over you. That's how they rule over you. But I actually, this is in Mark 10, right? I actually came to, to be a servant uh, and to give my life as a ransom for many. So you can see even there in the like key text that everybody says in Mark, the key text in Mark, he's contrasting his rulership to the Gentile kind of lords that rule over them. So th there's a way where he's actually critiquing them. So this way of the kingdom, he's coming in a subversive way and saying, you're not doing it right. <laughs> I'm actually coming to bring in the new kingdom. That's true for the ascension as well. You have Greco-Roman rulers who would ascend to the right hand. So you have all these images. We could go even to Luke 13, where he calls Herod a fox, uh, and he critiques his rulership. So we, we've got to begin with just understanding Jesus came announcing the way of the kingdom. Uh, again, in, in Bible classes, it's so hard because I think the first thing we tell them is, you know, the, Jew, the Jews at that time were expecting a, a Messiah to come on a white horse and defeat Rome, and he did something way different than that, and he changed all their expectations. And, and that, I think there's, there's some truth to that, but it's a little bit of an oversimplification because the tendency then is to say, well, then he didn't come with any political aims. And so I don't think that's completely true just by his announcement and what he was trying to do here on this earth. And so I think we can affirm there's some truth to that statement, but we, want, we don't want to take it too far. So you have that way of the kingdom, but then, I'm sure you have lots of questions, but then you have to pair that with the way of the dove. If he did come announcing the kingdom, then it seems like there would have been, he would have sought to overthrow him. But actually what you see is that in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, love your enemies. When he's asked about taxes, he says, pay taxes to Caesar. When he goes before Pilate, he's declared innocent. Um, when uh, one of the texts that it, a lot of people I don't look at, think look at from this angle, but when he's baptized, uh, if you go back to the kind of Roman history, most of their uh, Caesars and their rulers were inaugurated. They were actually chosen to be the ruler of their land based on the flight of birds and based on the flight of an eagle. Actually, if you look at a quarter dollar, you still have an eagle on the back of our quarter dollar. That comes from Roman times. So that's where we get inauguration. They actually read the flight of the birds. So if you look at the dove actually coming on Jesus in his baptism, he's showing, yes, I'm king, but I'm a different kind of king. A dove is a way different symbol than an eagle. And so he's showing, I'm, I'm not coming to domineer over you. I'm actually coming by the way of peace. So this is the paradox, and it's really difficult. I, I still find it difficult sometimes to explain. Jesus came with a political message, but he didn't come in the way of seeking to unseat Rome. He came actually to submit to them. But by submitting to them, he actually subverted them. So if you go to the cross, the cross, he says, I'm going to allow myself to be hung on a Roman cross. 
But by so doing, he actually declared the end of every earthly ruler. That, I mean, that did start at that point. But that, that began, like his kingdom was going to be brought here to this earth and actually replace all the other kingdoms. So you, you take that way, and that's where I get the way of the dove, but the way of the kingdom, he announced the way of the kingdom, but then he said it's going to, be, it's going to come up, not by sword, not by the spear, not by conquering you in these ways, but actually by submitting to you and showing you a better way. And um, we, I think we have to hold both of, both of those two things in tension. And that's what's so difficult because we want that political Jesus, <laughs> but then he acts in a certain way politically. And so th- they have to come together. And that's where, I already said this, but that's where I think the cross is so beautiful because it, it is that submission and subversion meeting uh, on that Roman cross where he, he was installed as the king on the cross by submitting to Rome. What, what a, I think that is our marching order as Christians. Like the, we sacrifice, but at the same time in our sacrifice, we're actually pointing to another reign, another rule, another kingdom. You're beautifully put. And I'm glad you uh, mentioned the descent of the dove as uh, we, we previously had um, uh, Alan Street on and uh, with his Caesar and the Sacrament book um, and uh, did, did some, he's really done some nice work on the background with the, um, the auguries and with the eagle and the dove. So yeah, I'm glad you, glad you, you point that out again for us. Um, let's just, uh, for uh, the sake of breaking up our conversation a little bit, let's jump to a uh, speed round here, if you don't mind. And so these are uh, quick, fun questions, just uh, off the cuff answers, uh, just should uh, move through it real fast. So you don't get to defend yourself. You just give your answer. That's sort of the rule uh, for this game. All right. So, um, so Patrick, what's something you find embarrassing? Uh, that I get embarrassed a lot. Yeah. What's something that embarrasses you? <laughs> oh, that you get embarrassed a <laughs> that lot. That I get embarrassed a lot. I'm you. embarrassed that I get oh, embarrassed. Oh, okay. It's a, it's a meta, it's a meta answer. A meta answer. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, give me a book or author outside of Bible or, or theology that you think is worth reading. Stephen King. I find his stories very spiritually deep. Um, so yeah, I, I know it's the speed round, but I would just say a book like Pet Cemetery is all about death and resurrection. All right. Apart from Christian nationalism or or quietism, what's a trend in society that scares you? So you can't answer just from your book, uh, but uh, a trend in society that scares you. Inflation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, seriously, like you have four kids. I got seven. I'm really scared right now. Food is costing a lot of money, okay? <laughs> it is. It really is, man. I got three teenagers. It's getting real. Um, uh, you walk up to the bartender, Patrick, and you order what? Um, I order a, a water, actually. I often just drink water. <laughs> That's a good Baptist answer, right? Yeah, that is a very safe Baptist answer, but you could say grape juice as a Baptist. I mean, come on, Patrick, you like grape juice. That would have been. Uh, if your mother were able to walk into your office right now, what do you think she'd say about it? She would say, why is that guitar hanging on your wall and you don't know how to play it? Oh. <laughs> I just I just bought a guitar. I'm practicing. I, I have the video on here and our, our audience can't see. Your, your office looks pretty clean, Patrick. I'll, I'll commend you. Like, Thank you. Um, your mom is not going to rebuke you for having a, di- a disordered office. Um, so that's that's a, that's good, I guess. All right, well, let's jump back into the structure of your book as you, you kind of like structure it part one, which is the about the kingdom of the dove. Part two then uh, is the second paradox. And so uh, how about, again, drawing on scripture as you see fit? Uh, what is what does it mean to say Jesus proclaimed the way of subversion? Um, and then um, 
Oh, sorry, we already did that. That's the, the way of subversion in the dove. Did I miss uh, paradox number one? No, you. It's Paul, Paul, and Paul in the church way of subversion. Oh, okay, yeah, I, I wrote it down wrong. I think in my Q and A, so I could look back at page. Yes, Paul proclaimed the way of subversion, but did so in a way of submission. That's uh, that's what I was wanting to ask you. So, uh, yeah, do you want to speak to Paul? Yeah. So, so as I said at the beginning of this conversation, this book actually stemmed from my reflections on Acts. And as you watch uh, Paul go into different cities, whether it's Philippi, Thessalonica, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, Jerusalem, there seems to be always like some riot kind of following him or something that's happening. And, you know, I think the clearest one for the sake of time is when he goes into Thessalonica. He goes into Thessalonica in Acts 17, and he declares just the Christian message, Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And what's really interesting is they accuse him of defying the decrees of Caesar and turning the world upside down. And so it's pretty clear that that accusation, they're interpreting his Jesus the Messiah as a political claim. And if you know the history of Thessalonica, they had good relationship with Rome at that point. So they're concerned with this new message and this new kind of missionary who came in here. They're afraid, what is Rome going to think about this? And so their accusation against him is precisely political. You are going against the decrees of Caesar and you are turning this world upside down. If you actually look, I argue in the book, if you look at that language of turning the world upside down, you could translate that subverting the Roman Empire. Just the Greek behind it. It's not for sure that we could translate that way, but you could read it that way. And I, I actually take that language of subversion from that text that there's he, his message is subverting the Roman Empire. You also see that happen in Philippi. When he goes into Philippi, there's just so much uproar wherever Paul goes. And so, again, we, we tend to think of Christianity as, oh, it's going to fit just really nicely into culture. It's not going to cause any waves. We just need to be winsome witnesses, <laughs> right? Uh, and there's, there's much truth to that. But you just watch what Paul does, and it's causing uproar. It's causing... Uh, turbulence in society. It is a fully, not just, I want you to reform your heart. I want this whole society reformed. I'm announcing a new way following in the footsteps of Jesus. Then, so I, I move from not only Paul's actions, but then what did he go to establish? He went to establish the church, the ecclesia. And if you even do a word study of the church, the, the ecclesia is a, is a body politic. It's an assembly of people who come together to vote on something politically. Now, you, you got to be careful of word studies and etymological fallacies and so forth and so on. But I think the church is truly a political community because we are submitting to Jesus as the king. So our main confession as Christians is Jesus is king. So if, if you put Actually, all of our actions, um, you know, a sermon is really a political speech. <laughs> it's reminding you of your allegiance to King Jesus. Uh, and then I actually uh, use, you mentioned Alan Street, who's been on the podcast. I kind of use his books in terms of baptism and the Lord's Supper and say, you know, those are political acts where you're actually taking off in one sense. I know this is... Um, this is more language that you could use, but you're taking off the jersey of one team in baptism and putting on another jersey and saying, now I'm a part of this kingdom. Now I'm a part of this team. You're actually aligning with that political community. And the same thing is true with the Lord's Supper. You're reminding yourself, actually, this is, this is the king that I'm following. And so all of the things 
uh, I think one at one point in the book, I said, Paul didn't get thrown into prison so that people could have organic relationships with one another and go to Starbucks and sip white chocolate mochas. No, <laughs> he got thrown into prison because he truly believed this new community was meant to be a world-forming force. I think that's our, our first political community as a church, as a people of God that's in the church. But then you have to pair that with, he was subversive with the way of submission, because actually, when Paul goes before all of his trials, he's declared innocent. If you read Acts, like the four trials at the end of Acts, every single time the rulers, the Roman rulers, are always like, man, I can't find anything wrong with this guy. And actually, Paul even appeals to Caesar. He goes, I'm, I believe so much in Acts 25 in the innocence of my message that I will go before Caesar. So he appeals before Caesar. So if his message was so subversive that he's trying to undermine Caesar, that appeal doesn't make any sense. He's willing to stand before him. Uh, and not only that, but you have to integrate, uh, you know, texts like Romans 13, where he writes, submit to the human rulers. And what I always tell people is, look, I understand that our rulers can be frustrating. But Paul said this about Rome. <laughs> like Rome was way worse than anything than you can imagine at this point if you're living in America or have the experience that I have had, right? Now, I understand there can always be reform. But Paul said this about the a government that would kill him, that killed his Messiah, and that would kill many of his friends. <laughs> So that, that's kind of a shocking thing that he would be willing to, to say that. Peter says the same thing. And from tradition, we know that he, he also was killed by Rome. And so there it is again. We have not only in Jesus's life, but in the church's life, in Paul's life, that he announced a message that did something to society where they wondered, wait a second, who are these alien delegates? <laughs> who are these pilgrims? But then... When they brought them before court, their message was so upsetting to society. When they brought them before the rulers of the land, they found that they had nothing against them. And I, my argument in the book, throughout the book, is they didn't have the hermeneutic to understand what sort of kingdom Paul nor Jesus were, was bringing in. Because when Jesus is asked, are you a king? He says, yes, I am, but not in the way that you think. I haven't, I haven't raised up an army, John 18. My kingdom is not of this world. Now, when he says my kingdom is not of this world, we typically think, oh, so it's just a spiritual kingdom. I think he's saying my kingdom doesn't follow the rules that your kingdom does. I'm not going to beat you by the sword. I'm going to beat you by sacrifice. I'm going to show you a better way. And so th there's the paradox again, that it's somehow causing riots. <laughs> it's somehow getting him in trouble. It's somehow going against the decrees of Caesar. But at the same time, he can bring himself before Caesar, and Caesar won't even understand. They will condemn all of these figures to death. And so we have to bring that kind of paradox together again of submiss submission and subversion at the very same time. And then your, your final paradox that you're dealing with is um, that Jesus' return will be the way of the lion, uh, but it'll be embodied in the way of the lamb. Obviously, you're, you're drawing heavily on Revelation and uh, Revelation chapter 5, right, where we have that um, image of uh, uh, the lion who conquers, but it turns out to be a lamb who conquers through martyrdom. Um, and just for the sake of time, I'm, I'm going to bypass that question and jump to some of my bigger questions um, that I have that kind of like look at the whole project and want to ask um, some more probing questions. 
uh, of it. Um, and so I agree with your project by and large, but I but I also I'm still struggling with all this trying to figure out my own way of trying to nuance. And part of the reason I wanted to interview you uh, for on script is I get a lot of these kinds of questions too. When I talk, I talk about Jesus as King and allegiance a lot to people, and they're like, "Well, what does this mean for how we should vote and for our politic?" And um, I struggle, right? To um, but I, I find myself aligning with a lot of what you said, but I'm still trying to wrestle through it. So I want to hear your views. Me too. We can figure it out together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you can. Oh, no, I hope I'm not figure it out together. I want you to tell me the answers and just lead me here, Pat, Patrick, like a good shepherd. Um, but anyway, um, so here's um, here's one of the things at least I was kind of wrestling with. It seemed like there was maybe. Um, you know, kind of something going on in the background was I was kind of curious to probe maybe models of sovereignty that you're operating with, you know, kind of in the background theologically, as you believe that God appoints the governing authorities, we would certainly find scriptural passages that would affirm that. Um, and so that if any leader is in place, we must realize that's God's will. Um, but um, as we kind of nuance that, right, how do we um, speak about this more carefully, I guess, whenever we, we think about issues like or, or Hitler or something like that to make it extreme, right? If we want to say, you know, did God appoint Hitler knowing all that Hitler would do? Um, do you see a model of sovereignty um, that allows God to have a kind of more permissive will? Or do you uh, like see God as like sovereign over every molecule? Um, how do you, what kind of model of sovereignty is operating in the background um, with your um, with your pol- your political vision here, I guess. Yeah, that's a great question. It gets into a lot of different kind of theological issues. I I do stem from the Reformed tradition, so I have a pretty strong view of God's sovereignty. Um, how that engages with the problem of evil is obviously a really difficult question in, in terms of how can ju- God be just and good if he would appoint uh, a figure like Hitler. And so, um, but I, I see both um, a strong affirmation, affirmation in the scriptures of God's sovereignty and a strong affirmation of human responsibility and that we're responsible for what we've done. Uh, and so I try to hold both of those things together, not always understanding exactly how they work out. Um, I think Romans 9, even though that's not Paul's primary aim in that text, but Romans 9 through 11 is a good kind of uh, example of that, where he's holding two things in tension. And you recognize he's actually struggling with it himself, or his interlocutor is in that text, because he's kind of arguing with this interlocutor saying, well, what about this? Well, what about this? And I think Paul recognizes these are these are difficult issues. And so, yeah, I do hold a strong view of sovereignty, but um, maybe this is a roundabout way and you can you feel free to press more. I like podcast conversations where you press more. And if, if I'm being political and not answering your question, then you can, you can push more on it. But um, when I studied Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, one of the things that troubled me was what about those rulers that are so <laughs> abusive, uh, totalitarian, bringing about so much death and destruction? Is Paul really saying, just submit to them? And what, what I really came to was Paul is not giving his whole political theology in that text. He is, he, he, I think he is giving the basic posture he wants us to have, kind of the knee-jerk reaction he wants us to have, because as I mentioned before, this is Rome, who had a lot of corruption. But at the same time, we, we, have, we have to integrate Paul's life and Jesus's life and the rest of the scriptures themselves. So a line that I kept on going back to, actually, um, 
is that, you know, Romans 13 and Revelation 13 exists in your Bible. <laughs> and, and Romans 13 says, submit to them because they're God's servant. Revelation 13 says they actually stem from the power of Satan, at least the beast that arises from the, the sea and the earth, which I take as, as rulers of this earth. Now, there might, they might be a final kind of ruler who comes, who's totally corrupt. But I do think Revelation is peeling back uh, the layer, apocalyptic literature here, and showing us there's something behind the rulers of the earth. And what's behind them is the dark spiritual powers. So here's where it gets really complicated. How can Romans 13 and Revelation 13 exist in our scriptures and both be true? Well, I think... This is where it is kind of a paradox and a mystery to me, but I think rulers of this earth can both be God's servant and be a tool for Satan at the exact same time. And so what does that mean? Well, every situation you have to figure out, does that mean I'm called to go against their rule or am I called to submit to their rule? Well, you have an ax. It's a very clear command. If you say uh, for us to do anything that goes against God's command, we will not obey. So I use Bonhoeffer in the book. I mean, Bonhoeffer is a famous figure who actually believed in pacifism. <laughs> but then he agreed that he would become, from what I understand, I'm not a Bonhoeffer scholar, but from what I understand, he agreed to be part of a plot to get rid of Hitler because he recognized the destruction that Hitler was bringing. And so he recognized he lived in a situation where there was, I think, I think there's some true sense in which God placed Hitler there at that point. But also, it was, I think it was right for uh, people to go against him and to subvert this evil ruler. Uh, because uh, he, in another sense, he was uh, an embodiment of what Revelation 13 is speaking about. So, um, yeah, you know, Job is helpful for me there, too. Just, you know, recognizing that God seems to give some sort of a leash to Satan. And he says, you can go thus far and no further. But he seems to be still over it all. Um, and so th th there, I think you asked about permissive, you know, he permits Satan to um, torment Job. So that, yeah, I think that, that it, it, rounding back to your question, I think there is a sense in which God's permissive will, his sovereign permissive will allows certain things to happen. Why? I don't know. But that doesn't mean we just sit by and watch. Um, I, I think there's good examples of Christians throughout history who would then say we need to take things into our own hands. What's, what's really difficult, I'm, I know I'm blabbing on here, but what's really difficult for me as I walk through the scriptures is I couldn't find in the New Testament a lot of examples of them like, all right, we're going to fix everything. Let's go. You know, I mean, you have slavery in the New Testament times and Paul is not like, all right, let's fix this system. But I, I just had to remind myself, and I think we need to remind ourselves that they existed at a very different political time. They were a minority movement. And his goal was to establish churches, not, not to transform society. However, we live at a different time and we are ruled by laws, at least in America. And so we can advocate for good and true and just laws to try to reform systems for the good of humanity. That's not necessarily even a Christian move, but we're using kind of Christian reasons behind it. And so even though we don't see Jesus really trying to change the system while he was there, or Paul trying to do that, at least I would argue that, people might argue against me, I do think we live at a different time and we need to recognize the, the, the difficulty of doing political theology is recognizing the historical circumstance 
of these individuals and that politics ran so differently then. And it runs differently now. So trying to draw, I actually had this whole section that I cut like kind of hermeneutically, but trying to draw a straight line, it might sound like I'm doing this, a straight line from Jesus and Paul and Peter to our time. It's just really difficult because of the political situations that we live in. They are very different. But I still think we can draw principles from them and then extend those principles in our lives. So there's a long answer for you. Obviously, there's complex conversations to have about models of sovereignty, behaviorism, compatibilism versus Molinism, and so on and so forth. I'm not an expert on those things either. I've read on them, but I'm still trying to wrap my brain around it all. Um, but yeah, no, I think you offer a lot of wisdom there and, um, and that... Uh, you're right to say that we live in a different time. And as I kind of contemplate that, I had another question related to, you know, the complexities of that, because when we're dealing with a democracy situation, uh, I guess one of my reactions is um, part of the difficulty is that I'm the government right? and that you're the government, that we yeah. as individuals have a, have, um, we, we have a duty, or at least we, we may perceive ourselves as having a duty to be involved in both lawmaking and appointing officials. And to, so to that degree, like I am the government. So has God appointed me, right, as the government? Um, how does that, you know, I mean, when, when it gets democratized all the way down to the individual level, I do wonder um, what that might mean to say that, well, God is sovereign over appointing leaders when the reality is, is everyone is a leader within a democracy in that sort of way. So um, I struggle to know what, um, like, because as part of that, that means like, uh, is it my responsibility to try to build co coalitions? Is it mm -hmm. my responsibility to try to sloganeer? Is it my responsibility to try to build a platform for, you know, a specific a political outcome that I would see as favorable? Um, and if that's how government, if that's what government is, right, um, if, as it gets democratized, isn't, isn't God sovereign in making that whole process? Like from the point of view, if you say, well, God, God appoints government, right? Um, I, I struggle with how to make sense of what my, where the lines of my responsibility end up landing, right? Like um, how much should I invest in that? Especially if I, if I feel like our, uh, various forms of government might be like rearranging chairs on the Titanic. <laughs> that, um, right. that like my, my reaction tends to be um, just to lay my cards on the table. I probably, I probably end up too much in the quietest direction mm -hmm. as I tend to think that like, whether I get really involved in political activism or not is not going to really change things in a fundamental way. I want to invest in what I see as my fundamental policy, the church, yeah. like, where true yeah. change can happen. And I realize I think that's the right answer. Um, at least I'm convinced that is in terms of my, you know, my, my where I should divvy up how much time I spend. But I still struggle with thinking, like, am I shirking my duty? Am I just copping out? Am I not being politically active in the way that I should as a Christian? Um, or, or is it better to just, like, no, I want to try to create a, an alternative kingdom under Jesus's kingship right here in this local sphere and to say, no, any, any authentic form of, of politics is going to emerge only from this place, only from this <laughs> local sovereignty of Jesus, right? Yeah. That's where yeah. people are going to experience um, any kind of real government that's good. So I struggle with that. Um, and I don't know if you have any further wisdom that you want to share. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm probably to a fault, a both and person. Um, and I, 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 I resonate with those struggles, Matt. I, I think a lot of people feel the same way. Um, I had a line in the book that I think I said something like, Christian politics has to do with how we integrate our confession that Jesus is king with our call to love our neighbor. 
I do think you're exactly right. I think uh, Christian's politics begins in the true polis, the true kingdom, which is manifested here on the earth in the church. And if we're going to put our energy towards something, I think it should start there. It actually must start there if that's our true politic. If Jesus declared himself to be not just our king, but the king of kings, then our first order of business is to um, spread what he's doing. <laughs> he's our supreme commander. Um, but at the same time... I think living in a democratic republic society, Christians are called to love and care for their neighbor. And I think we see that stream, and you know this, just running from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And so I think I probably fall off on the same thing that you're, you, that you're saying you feel like you do. I put more energy into the church, and I think rightly so. But I also think I probably tend towards not thinking about what can I advocate for that will bring more common grace to more people. And I do think Christians in the past maybe had more of a sense of that when things were not going as well, <laughs> and that we have probably been lulled to sleep a little bit in America uh, in a little bit more of a materialistic, comfortable life. That we're like, well, we're just going to press for Christ's kingdom. But if you have massive suffering, that is like pushed in your face every day, or civil war, or famine, or, you know, like death just all around you. I think you start to think, yeah, Christ's kingdom is here in this church, but it also has ripple effects here in the society. So I would just encourage Christians, and this is a word to myself, this isn't just a word to others, but I would encourage Christians to be politically active in the sense of advocating and, and promoting that which you think will benefit all of humanity, both here in our nation and across the world. And, you know, sometimes that means going um, with the culture and, and where they're saying we need to go. And sometimes that means going against them. So I would, I would say, like, in terms of the sexuality conversation and transgenderism, that would mean going against that ideology. Because I don't think that's going to produce flourishing for individuals or for humanity just going forward. So I think that's, uh, as Carl Truman has said, that's a social justice issue. And I think Christians should be on the front line of saying, um, if we're allowing especially children to go through transitions, that is actually, if we're not fighting against that, we are not doing good to those children. Um, so I think, I think issues like that, that means that should inform how you vote. Um, locally and federally, and that you should be an active citizen in that sense. So um, at the end of the book, you know, I use Jeremiah as kind of a paradigm. And I thought just Jeremiah, I do mainly New Testament work here, but Jeremiah is such a great example of his first message is to the people of God. But in the midst of that, he's not afraid to critique kind of the, <laughs> the world around him. Um, but at the same time, then he's like, I'm going to seek the good of, you should actually seek the good of Babylon. But don't hope in Babylon because Christ is going to bring his kingdom. And he brings all of those things like speak first to God's people. But you can speak to the world and then do good to all those around you. But, you know, you probably shouldn't think you're going to transform culture because ultimately Christ needs to do that. And I think my tendency is to either grab one of those things and be like, that's the whole truth. And that Jeremiah, as you look through kind of his prophetic ministry, he was able to kind of integrate all of those things in kind of this healthy whole that I, I found really compelling. Um, you, you know, at the beginning, I don't feel like I'm getting to all your questions. There's a lot there. Um, 
I do think in many sense, many senses, if we if we are the government in a democracy, then God has therefore, yes, he's appointed us to be engaged in an active in some sense. Now, everyone in their life, that's going to look different, right? And so I, I don't want to be prescriptive here. Um, but I do think we should be engaged and active. At the same time, he's appointed rulers over us to help lead us in those things. They, they serve in democracy. They serve in a republic. They serve us in terms of our wishes and our desires. And so, but we're also called, a, this is like in, in any church, what, how do you do, how do you <laughs> combine both, follow their lead and, and uh, you kind of have authority here. Somehow those the two things come together. So um, in terms of, um, I had another thought, but in terms of then subverting, if God has appointed us in a republic, then we are called to both submit and subvert because God has appointed us to do something, which goes kind of back to my Bonhoeffer example with Hitler. He was called, I think he was called to do something at that time. I think many Christians maybe would have been called or were called to do things. And we saw, uh, we have so many stories of the 10 booms doing something, right? They decided we're going to take this into our own hands because we recognize people are suffering. Human beings made in the image of God are suffering. And that means I need to do something politically active. What does that mean? Sometimes that means going against kind of what they call us to do. Yeah, well, you, you offer us a lot there to ponder, and I'm, I'm grateful for it. Um, I mean, one of the things I really struggle with is like the, you know, kind of the question of common grace. Like, I really like that. And I, I think I tend to agree with you. We need to advocate for that and to push for what will actually be for people's good. The problem is that um, the broader culture is not going to necessarily see you as being in their corner when you do it. When you're saying, yeah. you know, this is what's going to lead to human flourishing. Right. Um, at the mean, and meanwhile, they're saying, no, it's not. And stop being coercive. Stop. Stop pushing your Christian agenda on me and on my society unwillingly. Right. We're not Christians and we don't want that. Yeah. And so um, how does that um, how do you um, avoid the charge of a Constantinianism then? Right. Where, <laughs> yeah. where yeah. you're trying to like uh, the idea is that you're trying to coercively like create a Christian state. Right. When yep. you claim. Yeah. And you, I think in the book are clear that you think that doesn't work. I don't know if that's due to um, a biblical theology or just pragmatics or maybe some of both. Right. They usually say that doesn't work when we've done that historically where we end up with an imperialistic form of Christianity. And some um, might argue with me on that point. I understand. But, <laughs> but I also get your, your view, too, that, you know, I mean, any law is by its very nature coercive. Like it's kind of like yeah. the, the, the old saying is, right, you can't legislate morality. But the truth is also the opposite direction. Any act of legislation is a morality. Right? Yeah. It embodies a morality. Right, right. Uh, and will, um, it both embodies one and actually creates morality through its implementation and through it, the justices and punishments associated with it. A very, very complex issues here. Um, uh, anyway, let, let, let me let me, you me to jump into that just for a minute if you want to, but I have a real practical uh, question. I want to hear. let me just say one thing about that. I, I, I do think you know, in the in Paul's life and Jesus's life, they were advocating for kind of a natural law of how it's supposed to be, and people did get upset about that, but but they believed it was truly good for them. So, at least in my mind, this gets into the kind of Christian nationalism conversation. Which is complex, but um, you know we live in a pluralistic society here in America, and I do think Christianity has and should continue, and it should continue to influence the nation. But that's very different. That's very different from saying there needs to be a fusion of Christianity with American life. So I think we can advocate for what we believe in without saying we think this needs to rule everything. <laughs> So it's it's a fine distinction, and then the other distinction actually is you begin to fuse American life with Christianity by dominion, 
I actually have an article that I'm working on that tells you the good, the bad, and the ugly of Christian nationalism, basically using that old movie title, and saying, in a pluralist society, we should all believe that our beliefs should influence what we're doing. Like, whatever religion you, you hold to, actually, the, this, I think this goes with biblical principles, religious liberty, um, and kind of American ideals, that we should be all advocating for our beliefs in the public square. So there's nothing wrong with advocating for your Christian beliefs. Other people won't agree with it, but that's what happens in a pluralistic society. I think we're running up against that. But then to argue we should have the only voice or the main voice is a totally different, I think, a different argument. Does that make sense? So advocating for what you believe in, I think everyone wants everyone to do that in some sense. And the but but then to argue that my voice should be privileged or the only one heard or that there must be this fusion, I, I just I think that's another step that it, it becomes uh, more difficult. And so that's my brief my brief kind of response to that. But I I acknowledge it's a complex issue. <laughs> okay, yeah, no, thanks for that helpful addendum. Um, I w- I want to um, bring our mind back to this is a really intensely practical question. I know in addition to students and academics, we have a lot of pastors who listen in, elders. And, um, you know, one of the things that you speak about is, of course, like baptism as and, and Lord's Supper as being political statements. I think we need to do more to help the church become aware that they are political. Um, but c- kind of going beyond that, I think that the, maybe the biggest struggle on Sunday morning or whenever we gather together as a church is to make the confession Jesus is Lord an actual meaningful confession. It's maybe implicit in the sermon. It's maybe implicit in our worship. But we don't actually usually actually say those words, right, um, on any given Sunday morning, in, in, except maybe in a, you know, a song sense. Or, um, but how do we, like, how do we actually, like, when we come together, like, heighten the way we are committing to Jesus as King? So when we come together, we're saying, like, at this moment, like, as we gather, you are the King over us. I want you to rule over me right now. And I want to do practices that will help me to allow you to rule over me right in this moment when we're gathering so that we actually become a polis, right? So that we actually are a citizen body where King Jesus is ruling in that moment when we gather together. What can we do? Do you have any practical ideas or um, tips that were, as you've been thinking about this issue of, uh, of heightening our allegiance to King Jesus and, the, and that being connected yeah. to our politic or our social life? Um, anything you think we could do as gathered uh, gathered community um, that yeah. would heighten that? Yeah, I mean, my answer to you is probably going to be quite dissatisfying, <laughs> but I would say preach the word, sing the word, eat the word, pray the word. I, I would go back to what the earth, church has always done and what the New Testament calls us to do, because really, as we do that, that is reminding us that we are we are actually conducting a rally around our king by doing those things and actually by doing those things that are prescribed for us in the scriptures rather than saying let's try to make up something else we're actually following his voice and his command because we see throughout the scriptures what do you do when you come together well you meditate upon his message to you <laughs> so that's what preaching the word is i think it's saying hey we've got a king and he said something to us about how we're to march out of here yeah. And Can so I pause we you for a second and press sure. a little bit. For yeah, I'm, I guess my yeah. concern is, yes, I, we're going to do those things. We're going to continue to do those things. I don't think anyone's saying we sh- we probably should radically change in the sense of doing none of those things. But how do we move them from the category then of like individual and religious? OK, that's how people tend to experience their Christian faith. Like I personally am individually experiencing something religious to we as a corporate body are experiencing yeah. something political. 
Like, yeah. so I, I, I hear what you're saying on the one hand, mm-hmm. but how do we move it from being, okay, like this is God's word to me and it's a religious word that I'm receiving as an individual to this is God's word to us as a body politic and our marching orders. Uh, how do we get people to shift their frame of reference? Like, is there, do you have any ideas? Because I'm really struggling with that uh, on a pragmatic level. Like, how do I, as, as pastors talk to me, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm at a loss as to uh, yeah. where, where, how do we shift on those kind of fronts? Yeah, I mean, I think we mobilize the church to do things together rather than indiv- individually. Um, and so I think even it starts from the leadership of the church beginning to speak to the people, not as individuals, but as a community. So like we we begin to just refer to like us as the church. This is what we are going to do together. And that's difficult because I think a lot of people in the church do kind of want to go out and do their own thing. But if you can you can join arms with other people and remind people, we don't come to church. I think a lot of it just comes from teaching. We don't come to church to close our eyes and worship God all by ourselves. You, I mean, I think during COVID, like that's kind of what happened, right? Because everyone had to be by themselves. But there's something unique about coming together and singing together and hearing one another so that maybe we can uh, lower the music a little bit and so we can hear each other sing. Um, there's something unique about hearing the word preached together. Why don't we just watch this um, on, you know, like on a YouTube channel? Because I think the word is uniquely active together. And that you begin speaking, there's something communal. I mean, there's so many sociological studies. There's something communal about coming together and hearing something together. And what happens is that spawns conversations about how that affected you, what you're called to do. And so I I know, again, I'm not giving any like silver bullet answer here, but I think just reminding people the church is not here to serve you as an individual. You're, you're here because you are the church. Just like hammering. I think I've seen churches do this well. They hammer that into their people, that you are the body. Like we are here to equip you for the work of the ministry. The ministry is not us standing up and preaching the word and then you go home and you do whatever you want, right? The ministry is actually, I'm just reminding you of what we believe. Now you're supposed to go forth and do it. And that means you've gathered together in this local community and you link arms with one another and you help one another do those things. I think it's so easy and, and, you know, it's so easy to separate into our different suburban or urban spheres and then go off and do our own Christian walk by ourselves. But ideally, you know, in the early church, all these people live by each other. <laughs> so uh, the, the main problem here is cars, right? We drive to our churches. Uh, no, but, you know, they had to walk these different places and they they were all together all the time. And so... I just think we have to go back to reminding people of what the church is, that it's community and that we're called to do this together. Um, and I know that seems very simple, but I I do think as we instill that reality in people, they actually get excited. They want to be, people want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. They want to, I think they need to be led to believe this church thing is is not about an individual, it's about us together. Life, uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer again, life together, right? That's what it, that's what it looks like. And so um, there's so much more we could say about that, but I, that's where I'd kind of start, just instilling that into people. Certainly, um, yeah, how we, how we speak and how we um, frame things and uh, how we frame things for our congregation, right? Whether we frame things in a moral, therapeutic, individualistic way versus a, a collective way is certainly an important place to start, even if it's not yeah. a silver bullet, right? And, yeah, um, yeah. You know, and I, I, I'm guilty of looking for a silver bullet too, right? As I, I want to try to figure out practically, like, how can we make these shifts 
Um, certainly, um, you're right, uh, worship in the Word and um, communion, they're all going to be uh, central to what we continue to do as the church. Um, but I'm, ho- I'm hoping that we can continue to reframe also, right? And so that we, yeah. we do these things in a more collectivist, Jesus is certainly sort of way. I know certainly. that's your heart too. And yeah. um, I really love what you're doing uh, in, in the book. And I've been uh, grateful for this conversation, Patrick. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's been fun talking to you. This is Matthew Bates for On Script. I've been speaking with Patrick Schreiner about his thoughtful, wise, and timely book, Political Gospel, published in 2022 by B&H Press. You are going to want to read this one, and as I mentioned, you may be wanting to pass this along to your uh, crazy political friend, right, uh, uh, after you read it yourself, uh, to help reframe politics and Jesus, and to do all these things in a Jesus-first sort of way. There are links for purchasing on our website, www.onscript.study. Thanks, friends, for listening. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study donate.